Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency radio modulation No change without struggle No one in power ain't giving up nothing No change without struggle No one in power W-O-R-T 89.9 FM Listener Sponsored Community Radio Madison, Wisconsin And hello, welcome to A Public Affair I am Esti Dinor First of all, thanks so much to those of you who donated in the past two weeks or, or pledged especially of course the ones who um, gave us uh, money the Friday A Public Affair We really, really appreciate it. I understand that, um, well, we did well. Um, we made a goal. Um, I understand that the station is still a little under uh, what it set out to raise, and you can still uh, pledge or donate online, and the premia are still available online. So, um, wartfm.org if you haven't pledged you can also specify that you're pledging for this show if that's what you want to do uh, there's somewhere in the form that uh, you can say that and then it'll be added to our total but that's not as important of course as just bringing the station to its 100% so we can continue doing what we're doing and get these new soundboards and so on and so forth thank you so much. My um, guest today has just written a book. Uh, the book was just published, Teaching White Supremacy, America's Democratic Ordeal and the Forging of Our National Identity. Donald Yakovone is a lifetime associate at Harvard University's Hatchins Center for African and African American Research. He's the author or editor of 11 books, the winner with Henry Louis Gates Jr. of an NAACP Image Award for the Af- African Americans, Many Rivers to Cross, which was published in 2014. And he's a recipient of the W.E.B. Du Bois Medal from Harvard University in 2013. The book that we are going to be discussing is quite thick and um, has a lot of information. Donald Yakovon, um, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for doing this. So what what do you mean um, when you say democratic ordeal, which is part of the title of the book? Yeah, that, that's a good question. The um, we, we have uh, in, in recent years always thought of the United States as a democratic republic, and it is a democratic republic. However, um, the benefits of the democracy has never extended to all its citizens. And uh, a good part of the reason for that has to do with the way Americans, since before formation of the Republic, have uh, 
identified themselves and the country that they formed. And um, that was as these, as my examination of uh, so many text, textbooks um, revealed to me uh, how much whiteness, and they use those terms, that term whiteness meant uh, to, the, to, a, to the definition of what it meant to be an American uh, and how people identified themselves. And, sure. uh, and, and also to the very creation of democracy. Uh, in the second chapter of the book, I discuss a um, extraordinary individual, John H. Van Every, who uh, formed a career uh, being the first professional racist in American history, which is to say uh, he earned his living publishing um, across the country books, pamphlets, uh, two newspapers, and spreading his idea of what white supremacy meant to all corners of the Republic, uh, throughout the South, uh, throughout the North. Uh, in one year alone, one year alone, he had advertisements for his, his uh, publications in 1,400 different American newspapers. He was known across the, uh, the ocean in England, he was, his works were cited in Congress and state legislatures. Lincoln had even read his works. And by his definition, there could have been no democracy without the presence of African-Americans. Without the African presence, he argued. Uh, the European class hierarchy would have been imported along with the colonists uh, and made a permanent feature of American society. However, there, the presence of the African, he argued, uh, made differences uh, among people of European descent minuscule in comparison to the differences between themselves and people of African descent. And uh, even Toni Morrison made the same point that that has been the history of American democracy and our struggle to overcome that. Yeah, you actually um, say also that the American Communist Party, uh, in a sense, had the same um, way of thinking. Um, let me find where, it is, where I have it in my uh, notes, but maybe you can just answer it um, without me adding more. Yeah. Uh, the American Communist Party? Yeah. No? Yes. Let me see where this note uh, is. Uh, anyway, you know what? While I'm looking for that, let's let's just start talking about what the book or what your research um, sure. set out to find. What what is it about? Well, uh, this is a, this book is about the uh, origins, formation, and perpetuation of ideas of white supremacy, and especially how um, the, the definition of the self and the, and the, and the nation was perpetuated uh, year in and year out uh, through the American educational system. Now, this is not a book about a bunch of bad books, but uh, the, the uh, importance 
of textbooks uh, is, is simply overwhelming because they are designed to, uh, to form and shape generations of students. This is how uh, students learn about the history of the United States. This is how they learn what values it symbolizes and the aims and goals of the Republic. And what so shocked me when I started reading these textbooks uh, over, over five years ago um, was the degree to which they overtly emphasize the centrality of whiteness in the creation of the Republic and of the self. So you say um, basically that right from the beginning, American education has served the needs of white supremacy. Can, can you explain yes. um, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, you know, certainly, uh, as I just said, through all, all these textbooks, but educational leaders uh, also uh, outside of textbooks, out in the public, uh, emphasized this, uh, these points. Uh, one of the most famous of all of them uh, is Horace Mann, who is remembered quite rightly for helping to create and build uh, the uh, public education system and the teacher training programs across the United States. Uh, his, his influence on public education is uh, enormous. There's nothing to, to equal it. On the other hand, um, he was also uh, a white supremacist. He, uh, he, conf he, he proclaimed that he was an abolitionist uh, before the Civil War, but his abolitionism amounted to support for the American Colonization Society so he could remove people of African descent from the country uh, and make it a pure white one. He considered them to be inferior, inherently inferior, and uh, essentially living in a uh, intellectual swamp and incapable of uh, integration uh, into American society. He even, much to my shock, um, used a, a, some astonishing language in describing uh, Southern Black women. He opposed slavery in the same way that, that um, Benjamin Franklin, who was a slave owner, opposed slavery, arguing that Slavery gave work a bad name, that uh, work became something only a slave did, man argued, and as, as did um, Benjamin Franklin. And he complained bitterly that in the South, what he called the uh, African sluts were hmm. giving white women creating their inability to do work. He said this on the floor of Congress when he was a congressman from Massachusetts. Now, it is true that the term does refer to someone who works in the kitchen, but I checked this, and it also had the same meaning that it has today. So, uh, and of course, educators uh, from across the, uh, the country 
perpetuated these uh, these notions, uh, especially of, of black inferiority from uh, some of the first textbooks appeared in 18 in the year 1800 um, and continue to the present day. And the vast majority of them for most of our history were written by Northerners, published by Northern publishing houses. And this is another major theme that I um, developed in the book. And, and that is the responsibility of the North for the creation of white supremacist ideology and, this, and the repression of African-Americans. Uh, it certainly is not intended to exculpate uh, Southern slave owners and those opponents of segregation um, after the, uh, the Civil War, not by any means. Um, however, what became painfully evident uh, as I was doing this research, that is in every field of study, whether we're talking about literature, religion, education, science, and, and especially the law. Uh, Northern influence was profound and it eagerly and dramatically supported uh, white supremacist principles. Yeah, I'm uh, speaking with Donald Yakovon. He is the author of the uh, recently published Teaching White Supremacy, America's Democratic Ordeal and the Forging of Our National Identity. You are welcome to join the conversation if you haven't called in the past seven days at uh, 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also join us on social media at Word Talk on Twitter or a public affair on Facebook. So I want to ask you more about that, uh, Donald, because we do sure. tend, and that's again, that's part of the history that we know, but that apparently is not true, that the South was racist and uh, held slaves and so on and so forth, and the North was anti-slavery and um um, I guess anti-racism, but but your uh, research shows that this really is not um, correct. So talk talk more about what yeah. you understood through the books that you looked at, and also the role of not just publishers but universities and and religious um, institutions and. Um, activists um yeah slavery. absolutely it's it's universal and i think we have to understand that um uh, one way to look at this is uh, going back uh, uh to the uh, colonial period and because uh, this is where the principles of white supremacy are laid out and and are built upon uh one of the most uh, representative i individuals this book and of the problem uh is samuel sewell so sewell is remembered if remembered at all for being the judge at the salem witchcraft trials however he was also um the first american even if it's before the republic but the first american colonist the first american to write an anti-slavery pamphlet this was published in 1700 and was called the selling of Joseph. 
Uh, we remember it today because it was the first. Uh, however, during Sewell's lifetime, it was very unpopular. It was largely ignored. It was largely ignored because as he confessed in the pamphlet, Northerners could not tolerate the idea of African-Americans being free, any level of equality whatsoever. They could only accept them um, if they were uh, uh, controlled by the institution of slavery. Well, Sewell uh, condemned slavery as unchristian. He condemned the slave trade as horrific and destructive of families. All the things that you would think uh, someone who was an abolitionist would, um, would believe. However, it is also the case, and this would be true even in the 1850s and 1860s, that there were uh, many people in the North who may have opposed slavery, but they also opposed the presence of African-Americans. And Sewell in 1700 uh, explained that uh, the reason why so many of his fellow colonists could not stand uh, the presence of free, equal uh, African-Americans is because they were to their minds and to his mind like extravasant blood, blood that exists outside the main uh, capillaries and veins of the body politic. They would be for, they are and would be forever foreign elements. They could not be in the mainstream of, the, of colonial society. This notion so affected him that in his own diary, he, he wondered that after his own death, would he keep his level of whiteness, quote, after the resurrection? This is how deep, this is how profound um, the, this idea of white supremacy infiltrated and permeated every aspect of American culture, whether it is North and South. And we have to remember then that um, until 1827, slavery was throughout the states. New York did not abolish slavery until 1827. During the colonial period, slaves were everywhere. Massachusetts was the first colony to legalize the institution of slavery. There were slaves, of course, throughout the colonies, but to actually pass a law um, to uh, establish its legality, Massachusetts was first in the North. <laughs> so it, it, this, this is a transsectional issue, not an issue of the South, uh, certainly not by any means, especially when uh, segregation uh, continued th throughout our, uh, our history, whether we're uh, looking at Chicago or Boston, uh, schools were segregated, uh, uh, facilities were segregated, Famous black actors and actresses couldn't, this is in the 20th century, couldn't live uh, or, or rent a hotel room in New York. Uh, they had to go to black-owned facilities. This is a national issue uh, perpetuated, again, by northern publishing houses, which dominated uh, the publishing industry, not just the textbook uh, industry, which it, uh, it virtually owned. Um, 
And uh, it is a problem which is national in scope and requires national effort, not an effort uh, by one section of the country. And we cannot and should not foist responsibility for our current problems on another section of the country as if it was some kind of foreign element that the rest of us have no part in. Oh no, indeed, this is a national issue which all sections of the country have played a major role in. Well, I would like to add um, a Wisconsin aspect for that. I used to work for the Wisconsin Union Theater, which is part of the UW-Madison, and um, One of the stories I um, was told and like to tell others is um, how Marian Anderson came to mm-hmm. perform here in uh, Madison. And um, they reserved a room for her in the hotel where they reserved rooms for all of our artists. But then when they learned that she was a black woman, they said, no, she can't um, right. stay here. And uh, the director at the time um, let them know that if they don't reserve that room for Marian Anderson, she was going to pull their uh, uh, arrangement of uh, having other artists stay there, that she was going to go to another hotel. And I guess after some uh, back and forth, they allowed Marian Anderson to stay in that hotel. And that was the first time that uh, a black person stayed in a hotel in Madison, Wisconsin. So, um, yeah, we, I, I guess it's, it, it really was all over. Um, you say that even if slavery didn't exist, Northerners would have invented a lesser race to build white democratic solidarity, which is a very interesting right. statement. Um, expand on well, that. It- Yeah, and, and in fact, as I, as I uh, indicated, indicated in the book, that's exactly what happened. They, cre- uh, Northerners created this idea of, quote, Negro, unquote, uh, and they created the ideology of white supremacy and created the whole idea of race. Race, uh, uh, race doesn't exist. It's a figment of Northern uh, imagination. It's, there's no scientific evidence race there's no genetic evidence for race this is a, um, a so-called scientific um, theory that was developed at the end of the 18th and into the 19th century uh, which was fully and uh, and overtly designed to create a hierarchy of individuals who put people of European descent at the very top and people of African descent at the very bottom And it was all based on observations and assumptions. There was, there was no science involved. And so we have these notions of race and all the things that we uh, have become familiar with um, and which were perpetuated by textbooks, so-called uh, incapacity of people of Af- African descent to learn uh, uh, or even to work hard, although at the same time, Uh, they all argued that uh, the South could not have a, an economy without black labor because blacks could do work that the white man could not. So there was a, there's an inherent contradiction in, in these justifications. 
But in the end, it didn't matter because it, in a way, it's all fictional anyway. So they create this idea of a Negro um, uh, with uh, all these aspects uh, which, which were considered repulsive. They, they looked odd. Their knees were bent. Their heels were longer than uh, the heels of white people. In fact, during the Civil War, they called black soldiers long heels. Hmm. Uh, this, th- these, these ideas were all created uh, in order to place people of African descent at the bottom of this hierarchy and to uh, dominate them and to not be part of mainstream American culture. And all these ideas, which uh, John H. Van Every uh, argued for vociferously and relentlessly from the 1850s uh, right through uh, into the into the Reconstruction era, um, became accepted. And they became accepted and perpetuated in textbooks. It's, it's astonishing. And in fact, uh, so influential were Northern ideas about race that they were picked up by Southerners. Um, some of Van Every's ideas uh, about uh, what uh, historians have caused, called the, the lost cause were picked up by Southerners and incorporated into their own ideology of racial domination in the 20th century. Uh, United Daughters of the Confederacy reprinted Van Every's uh, pamphlets. Um, they used his textbook that he published with uh, his business partner. Uh, it's just astonishing of the level of responsibility that Northerners possessed but have never acknowledged in creating the issues which we are still grappling with today. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's something I hear from um, black people and, and other minorities, but especially African-Americans that um, in a sense, at least for some of them, in a sense, it's harder to live here in the North than in the South because in the South, Uh, racism is out there. It's obvious. They know who to stay away from. They know how people feel about them. While here, everybody is nice. And so the racism is hidden and uh, harder to detect, but it's very much alive. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I lived in Tallahassee, Florida uh, for almost seven years. And uh, at that point, Um, it it was a democratic state as opposed to today. Uh, And Tallahassee was uh, liberal by most uh, standards of the deep South. Uh, And I almost never heard any kind of derogatory statement by anyone in in the nearly seven years I lived there. But when I moved to Boston, It was so painfully obvious because people would say things and they would think, well, you're, quote, white, unquote. And so they just assumed that you shared their their own attitudes. I was stunned by the level of, of, of obscene commentary that people freely uh, made, even on the streets. Even, even though they didn't know you, they just assumed that you were white, you shared the same attitudes. Um, boy, I, I, I was really flabbergasted by the level of um, 
of overt racism that I found here in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, I think it's better than it has been, but it has not gone away. We still have segregated schools. In fact, uh, we, we are seeing across the North a resegregation of public education. Uh, Chicago being one of the most dramatic examples of that, which I detail at the end of the book. Um, this is, um, and of course, the busing crisis in Boston is famous. Um, the opposition was relentless, uh, un, uh, just unrelenting, and um, we still uh, bear the scars of that. Yeah, tell us about Chicago. Well, uh, Chicago, uh, if I could find the statistics uh, for you, um, there are, there's a very uh, detailed uh, sketch. Well, let me Uh, reintroduce you while you're um, looking for it. Again, my guest is uh, Donald Yakovon, a lifetime associate at Harvard University's Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. He has written together with Henry Louis Gates, Jr., The African Americans, Many Rivers to Cross. He is a recipient of the W.E.B. Du Bois Medal from Harvard University in 2013. And we are talking about his book, Teaching White Supremacy, America's Democratic Ordeal and the Forging of Our National Identity. Again, you are welcome to join the conversation, 608-256-2001, extension 9, at Word Talk on Twitter uh, or a public affair on Facebook. Um, are you, uh, have you found yeah, it, Donald? I, I have. <laughs> okay. 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 What I did is I examined... Um, uh, the the, uh, census that Chicago made available online. And as of um, 2020, there were 175,680 school-age white children who lived in Chicago. Yet of that figure, only 37,198 attended public schools, 10.9% of the city's public school population. There are, however, 122,116 African-American public school students, um, 159,163 students of Hispanic uh, descent. So what is what we're seeing here is that uh, white parents, and this happens, pick a city, Minneapolis, Boston, despite the large number of school-aged children, the parents are putting them in private schools, not in public schools. So public schools are becoming uh, schools of, of, of um, African-American and Hispanic ethnicity. Uh, in Chicago, there are 227 schools that are 90% African-American and 103 that are 90% Hispanic. Out of 539 schools, there are at least 60% of that. Uh, there are a total of 539 schools that are at least 60% students of color, one color or another. And, and yeah. the history, as you talk about it, is that actually 
it used to be that um, public schools were attended mostly by white kids right. and um, that most Americans never even made it to high school, but the, the percentage was much more that um, kids of color never made it to high school. Right, right. That, that, is, that is absolutely correct. Um, and uh, they, they were either barred uh, officially, unofficially, or, um, you know, compelled to work. Uh, I think that that has clearly changed. However, what we are seeing, as I just pointed out, uh, is that uh, while the increasing number of, of African and Hispanic students uh, in, are in the public schools, you have a decreasing number of people, uh, uh, students of European background in those, in those schools. And as uh, one individual pointed out, uh, it would be, it was almost impossible to find a, a white family that would allow their students to attend a school that was named after Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah, and I mean, we see it here uh, in Madison, too. I actually remember a conversation among um, a bunch of Jewish people where I learned that um, several of them send their kids to a Christian school because right. the public school is just impossible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, uh, and, and the, the, additionally, and this, this brings the story... I think right to our present day. Yes. Um, what is being taught in those schools, or not taught, as the case may be, is still destructive to uh, children of, of African descent. Um, I I found examples from Florida to Vermont, from Vermont out to the state of Washington, where teachers are compelling students to participate. And a slave auction in their classes. This is almost unimaginable that they would force. Uh, very often, you would have schools that had only one or two black students uh, in a particular class, and of course, they would uh, force these two students um, or one student, depending on, on the numbers, to stand in front of their classmates and be auctioned off to the highest bidder. When parents objected, they were told this is, quote, part of the state-sponsored uh, st state um, curriculum, mandated state curriculum. We have to do it. And therefore, you have no recourse. This, this is appalling. It, it, it really is appalling. Um, and yeah, I did, I did want to get to the current day. Um, and, but let me ask you first. Um, sure. About the history, so um, these horrible um, tropes about the difference between white people and black people and uh, what makes black people inferior were taught for many years and, you know, we'll get immediately to, to today. And... Um, of course, black people were among the students. So I, I was wondering about the way um, when kids whose brains are open to new information and um, 
they believe what they're taught by their teachers. How, how this kind of teaching has affected uh, black students? How has it affected white students? And what happens as they grow up? Yeah, of course. And um, it, it has, uh, it, it is damaging, of course, to African-American students. And it only fortifies ideas of white supremacy that white students or people, students of European descent uh, obtain either from their own families or from uh, other classes or from their friends. Uh, you know, for instance, um, there was a famous um, American historian named John D. Hicks, who taught at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, he taught there for many years. He was enormously popular. Uh, some of his, his, his general history classes had 500 students in it. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the school, which uh, still has a, uh, still honors him uh, on, their, on, their, uh, on their website, uh, says that there's no telling how many students uh, Hicks influenced it with his textbooks. Well, his textbooks depicted slavery as a summer camp that uh, people of African descent were not just treated well, but did very little. It was a picnic and even used the term picnic. But more importantly, uh, I think he taught students, and again, this is in one of his textbooks, he taught students that anything, anything beyond vocational training for African-Americans was a waste of time. He mocked their, quote, pathetic eagerness for education. And he asserted that they, that is people, that students of African descent showed no great proficiency beyond the elementary stages. Therefore, education was really uh, inappropriate. The kind of education that uh, students of uh, European descent would obtain was pointless for, for, for black students because they were incapable of benefiting from it. This is an idea which uh, was pounded into students' heads uh, throughout most of the 20th century. Yeah. Well, um, you say. Uh, and, yeah, well, let, let, let me interrupt and go yeah. on. That this, the, the, the legacy of this continues through these uh, slave auctions and these kind of activities. And uh, it, the evidence that I found uh, for this continuation is just, it's everywhere. Charles Blow, the famous uh, uh, New York Times journalist, uh, complained that when he grew up, this is the, the world that he faced, and he was taught that everything white was right and everything black was not. Those are his words. When I delivered lectures on this subject, classes, and uh, in, in, rather in schools uh, in, in New England, uh, I ask students, what did they learn about the history of slavery and African-Americans? And again and again, I'm told the same thing, quote, not much, unquote. But more importantly, and this occurred in my own town, there was a protest uh, uh, in 2019, I think it was, um, against some of the curriculum 
and the way black students were being reprimanded in the high school. And at the protest, one of the female students said that going to high school, quote, made me hate being black. Hmm. Now, this is now. This isn't in 1930 or 1940. This is now that, that the issue remains, and it is because of the legacy of the way we have been teaching African-American history and American history, because it's not just a matter of what is said. It's also a matter of what isn't said, what is not included uh, in, in our history. And therefore, if, if you present a textbook or if you teach and, and you do not discuss the uh, role of African-Americans in American history, therefore, they're not important. If they were important, you would have taught the teacher would have talked about them. And this, this has happened again and again and again. And we are see we still see the impact of that. And in fact, uh, much of the current social crisis that we are facing is a result of the way uh, our educational system and our culture has has uh, um, impounded this notion of white supremacy into our minds. And the fact that it is now uh, under threat or perceived to be under threat uh, is the motivation behind uh, what has happened to the Republican Party. Uh, and in fact, uh, so many of these people are well aware that the demographics are against them. Within 30 or 40 years, uh, people of European descent will be one more uh, minority. In a, in, a, in a nation of minorities, and they cannot tolerate that. It goes to the very their very identity of themselves and of the nation, and it's scaring the daylights out of them. Yeah, actually, you mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, I can't think of his name, but, but the man who made um, a career out of racism, which made me think about... Uh, yeah, Van Every, sure. Uh, yeah, about... about our former president, right? He he uh, made it to the presidency out of uh, being uh, out um, racist. And I have a caller for you, so let's let's go um, there. Sure. Um, Scott, you're on the air. Uh, thank you, SD. Excellent show as usual. Thank um, you. Since mapping the human genome is a relatively recent achievement. And it clearly shows that there no, is no such thing as race. And the recent advancements in genetics um, have contributed so much to so many fields of science, medicine, ethnology, anthropology, to name a few. It would appear that the current strong wave of anti-science sentiment and propaganda has a significant racist element. I'm wondering if your guest um, might have any comments. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that, that's a very astute observation, and you're exactly right. Uh, and it, it, it is a mark of the desperation of people who are uh, miseducated and who are perpetuating these ideas that we've been talking about, and I wrote this book about, uh, and they will go to any lengths to defend uh, what they see uh, as the truth and, and, a, and a necessity to perpetuate their own identity. Um, absolutely, there, it, it isn't science. Um, it's 
the creation of um, Northern ideologues like John H. Van Every, but uh, he's not alone. Uh, the, the pick a politician, whether it was Daniel Webster uh, or, or even Abraham Lincoln, who spent his entire career supporting the American Colonization Society. It is uh, the, the it is our history and it is our responsibility to confront this, and we must do it now. Mm-hmm. I. So I want to um, follow up on what Scott was saying and mention that there was also pseudoscience throughout all these years that um, supposedly proved that not only is there such a thing as race, but that there are superior races and inferior races. And, you know, you also think about education, right? We all are, well, not all of us, but a lot of us... um, who um, um, who are maybe more educated, whatever. We, we um, rally nowadays um, for education, but education is what um, really has sustained that notion of, um, of inferior races and, and superior races. So you, it's... You know, not a pun, but really, nothing is black and white, is it? <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Is exactly. Uh, and whether we're talking about, uh, you know, American education or even uh, in the medical community, there are still myths uh, being taught to uh, uh, future doctors uh, and nurses. It, it is so fundamental to the. Uh, to American character, uh, and and that's why, uh, you know, I subtitled the book, um, you know, the forging of our national identity, because this has been the way we have uh, identified ourselves uh, to ourselves to ourselves and the rest of the world. Um, I I I don't know uh, how many different ways we you know we can we can we can say this, but uh, it is a legacy which remains with us and is driving our current uh, social crisis. Yeah. And another thing that um, I think is a concern for nowadays is um, that a lot of um, the books that made it into school curricula um, are published in Texas. And... um, only in the last decade, um, Texas history textbooks acknowledge slavery, uh, not states' rights, as the primary cause of the Civil War. And, um, of course, they have uh, written in the past um, these nice things that you mentioned about slavery. Um, <laughs> yeah. They have not mentioned the role of um, African-American people in changing history, basically, yeah. um, what are kids oh, no, no. studying now? No, no, you, 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 you point out a, a, a problem which is not new. Even in the early nineteenth, uh, early twentieth century, uh, when Northern authors uh, published a, a textbook, these are, these are uh, in many cases, uh, you know, famous professors from Harvard or, or Yale, uh, publishing houses would create one version, one edition of the text for a Northern audience and another 
version of the text for a Southern audience. And the reason that they usually did this was not so much uh, because of what it said about race, although uh, that does come into play, as you point out, in, in Texas, uh, but because of the way um, Northerners interpreted the Civil War and its causes. And uh, the difference between the Southern version of a textbook and a Northern one could be profound, and uh, authors had no choice. They, the, the, the publishing houses would force them into this, and they had no choice to do it. Uh, in the case of, of Texas today and California, because these are two enormous states uh, with so many students, they drive the market for textbooks. And until 2019, uh, as you point out, uh, it was the case where um, Texas insisted that secession not slavery was the motive behind the Civil War, and that slaves weren't called slaves, uh, they were called imported workers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that goes back to, to, to the 19th century as well. So these traditions uh, live on uh, and continue. And I, I should point out, the Southern Poverty Law Center did a study of uh, textbooks and teaching, and they found out that even when textbooks presented a more balanced, more thorough, more complete version of our history, especially regarding uh, the institution of slavery, teachers would refuse to teach it, either uh, out of ideological principles or out of fear. So we're, we're now in a case where uh, we might have uh, cleansed our textbooks of the worst features uh, of, uh, of the past, but if teachers won't use them, and if teachers aren't properly trained, which is another enormous problem we're facing, um, then it doesn't matter. Yeah, um, I want to say two quick things before we end here. First of all, I want to get back to uh, the mistaken thing that I said earlier in the hour and uh, say that it wasn't the Communist Party, but rather <laughs> that some of the uh, worst excesses of the anti-communist fervor of the Cold War era had to, um, had to do with that. Textbooks, publishers, and authors were um, avid, as I have it here, to erase differences between North and South, uh, white differences. And right. um, so, um, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in fact, that, that turned out to have a personal aspect. Just so you know, we it. have just one minute. Go ahead. Okay, yeah, uh, a personal aspect to it, because that was the case of my own fifth grade uh, social studies text, which I found, and which, uh, as... Um, became uh, typical for the uh, 20th century, Robert e, Robert e. Lee becomes a national icon. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, um, I heard last year from, I, I, I talked to my 11-year-old grandson and asked him what he liked, especially in school, and he told me that he really loved the course about Spanish uh, culture, and how he learned that the Aztecs were Spanish and uh, so on and so forth. And when I voiced my <laughs> utter shock, I I think he didn't believe me at first. He went and talked to his teacher later, and um, 
I don't know what exactly happened there, but anyway, yes. Um, Donald Yakovon, author of Teaching White Supremacy, America's Democratic Ordeal, and the Forging of Our National Identity. Thank you very much for joining us and for the book. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, friends, I just want to say that today is uh, the last day of our producer, Rachel Wilson, here at, uh, maybe not here at Ward period. I think she will continue as a volunteer, but it's the last day of her as our producer, the producer of a public affair. She has done an amazing job in the last four years that she has been here. Um, really took APA several steps um, up and uh, using not just her um, smarts but also her uh, skills in um, research her um, as you may know she's an ABD all but doctorate and um, her keen understanding of the interests of the various different hosts um, you've been amazing Richelle um, thank you so much for this time I am so sad to let you go but I'm very happy for your for your um, new position and for the people that you will be working with I expect we'll hear more about you as you uh, make your steps in the academic world and in the world in general Thank you, Richelle. And thank you also, Summer. And thank you, Donald. And all of you who are listening, I'm Esti Dinor. Bye-bye.